This message by Jeff Hodgson was recorded during a Sunday celebration service for Cornerstone Church of Knoxville. Jeff serves as a pastor and bivocational elder at Cornerstone Church. All right. So good to be uh, with everyone here this morning. Good morning. My name is Jeff, one of your pastors here. And I want to launch right in and capitalize on Bill's message from last week. So are you ready? God save the queen. <laughs> I can, in fact, sing it for you if you like, but maybe I'll leave that for our resident Anglophile on the pastoral team, Bill, to do one day, maybe at a Cornerstone Union in the future or something. In all seriousness, I do want to take advantage of what Bill had to say last week where he did spend a good amount of time well introducing the topic of today's message, which deals with idolatry. It is such an important topic. It's one so important that what you find throughout redemptive history, through all the pages of Scripture, is that God seems to keep coming back to it. It seems that God's people are just so prone to this error, to this sin of idolatry. And I greatly appreciated the emphasis that he gave to the love of God underlying all of the commandments. If we miss the point that these commandments flow forth from God's heart of love toward us, we have really missed the point. When I commanded my kids years ago not to stick butter knives into the electrical outlets, I didn't do so as an arbitrary exercise of power and authority over them. I commanded them out of love and concern for their well-being. So please don't ever forget that the impetus of God's commands is that He loves us. And he wants the very best for us. And since this is Father's Day, I do think it's appropriate to consider God's love in light of being our Heavenly Father. We are not the same as God, but there are things about us as image bearers that are analogous to him. We have similarities to him. God is perfectly wise. We are not, but we can be wise. God loves perfectly. We do not, but we can love. And God is referred as Father, which suggests that there may be something analogous in our parenting with God's. So may this Father's Day be marked by a celebration of fatherly love. In remembrance of earthly fathers who demonstrated such, and especially in gratitude for the perfect love of our Heavenly Father. And how might we think of this love? It's not the only way, but one way is along these lines. When we parents think of our kids, what do we want? 
for them to clean up their rooms and to not monopolize the bathroom, of course, but there's more. What we want is we want to be with them, to relate with them, to be a part of their lives and for them to be a part of ours. We want communion with them. And this is God's heart toward His children as well. God has said He desires a people for Himself. Beloved children who enjoy Him for who He is and are grateful for what He has done. Children with whom He relates, loves, guides, communes. And in that relating, loving, guiding, and communing, He pours out His grace. His desire is for us to lay hold of a treasure. The treasure of the kingdom. Communion with the Father through the gospel of the Son in the power and presence of the Spirit. There is nothing greater. Not merely to know about the treasure of the kingdom, Not merely to get a glimpse of the treasure of the kingdom. Not merely to touch the treasure of the kingdom, but to hold it dear. To feel its presence in the palm of one's hand. Knowing that it can never be snatched away or misplaced. To be able to open that hand And behold that the treasure of the kingdom is ours. And to have it be life's guiding focus. Whatever the circumstances we find ourselves in. I believe that's what God wants for us. And I believe that is at the heart of the second of the Ten Commandments. If you'd like to turn to our text today, it's Exodus chapter 20. Verses 4 through 6. And if you need a Bible, our speedy usher team will personally deliver a copy for you to use and to keep. Just raise your hand and they'll be happy to do that. What an amazing thing to be ministered to by Almighty God as we consider His gracious Word. So let's pray to that end. Lord God, thank You. Thank You that You have already poured out grace to us. Thank You that You have already reminded us of Your nearness, of Your love toward us, of Your promises toward us. Thank You that we can gather here this morning and encounter You again. We pray, Lord God, that You would open our hearts to hear from Your Word your voice, your guidance, and to know something of your love. We pray in Jesus' mighty name. Amen. Our text this morning includes both a commandment and the consequence that comes from either ignoring or embracing that commandment. And after we'll look at the text, We'll take some time to consider some practical stuff as well. So we'll start with the commandment, 
found in Exodus 20, verse 4, through the beginning of verse 5. This is God's gracious word. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them. That is the commandment. Last week, the commandment we looked at dealt with the fact that there is, in fact, only one God. And to give credence to the notion that there existed multiple gods, as so many people in the ancient Near East believed, is a major problem. There is no sun god, there is no moon god, there is no fish god, or a whole host of gods living on some mountain somewhere. But this was the context, the cultural context that the Israelites lived in, and they were vulnerable to believe if they weren't corrected, if they weren't guided to be steadfast in what was true. Well, today we deal with the next pitfall that God's people can face. Not only do we need to reject the notion that there are so-called gods that would compete with the one true God, we now need to address our tendency to fashion things ourselves that we turn to, to trust in, to worship. This vulnerability of ours comes from our tendency to put way too much stock in the things that we perceive. Our flesh thinks very highly of itself. And so we are very tied to our feelings and to our senses. And since we think our senses are more important than they really are, we tend to believe things that we can validate with them. We tend to trust how we perceive and feel about things. We take comfort in the things that we can see or hold. Now, most of us don't have visions of God or hear his audible voice. And sometimes that means we go looking for something that we can see or hear or hold on to. Perhaps it means we try to fashion something ourselves to cling to, something that feels trustworthy. Now, there are as many potential idols out there as there are human imaginations, so to try to catalog them all would be impossible. But I think there are three broad categories that might be helpful for us to discuss. Now, the first category is pretty obvious. It's, it's, it's pretty overt. They're explicit idols, golden calves, statuettes, figurines, etc. Now, we're probably not people who are taking blocks of wood or stone and carving them into little God shapes that we take comfort in in this life. Modern folks tend to be less likely to be quite so obvious. We've come up with a whole big collection of other idols instead. And so the second broad category covers a range of things that would reveal the desires of our hearts. They may not take a physical form of, of some little god, 
but they are still objects in which we try to find our comfort, our security, our identity. So is there a number of dollars in your portfolio that says to you security? If only you could obtain it. Do we trust in riches? Is there a number of followers on social media that says to you belonging? That we have the proper relationships that we crave? Is there a marital or a parental status that you think would make you feel complete? Is there a cultural movement that you think validates you, affirms your identity and your worth? Or is there a job or an advancement in your career that, you would, that would finally give you the sense of identity or self-satisfaction or self-esteem that you crave. In each of these, and so many other idols like them, we can functionally replace being satisfied in the Lord with something else. So another way to think about this or to ask the question might be, what are those things in your life that you fear losing. And I'm not talking about an appropriate grief that comes from the loss of a loved one or something like that, but, but rather those things that you think promise you security and value and identity. They reveal the desires of our hearts. They reveal an idolatry. Or thirdly, and maybe the most insidious of all, are the truly good things that we can desire in an idolatrous way. And these are things that aren't necessarily obvious idols like carved statues or, or the love of money. The things themselves aren't the problem. It's the why and the way that we seek them. So you could take, for example, even the fruit of the Spirit that we're all familiar with from Galatians 5. A wonderful list of things against which there is no law, says Paul, that includes love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. We would love to see those things present in our lives, right? Of course we would. But here's what we might overlook. Notice what they're called. It's the fruit of the Spirit. Because these are things that come from Him. These things are secondary things. They exist in our lives when we are first communing with the Lord, not apart from Him. These things are present if He is present. So instead of benefiting from them because of our communion with God, what if we make the mistake of thinking something like, if I just had those things, then my life would be more pleasant. If I just had those things, then I would be okay. 
And that's how we can treat even great things like the fruit of the Spirit in an idolatrous way. In essence, our mistake can be that we treat the fruit of the Spirit like they are the treasure in the field, which they are not. Communion with God is the treasure in the field. And as we grow in communion with Him, these wonderful things follow. Let's not get that backwards. In Matthew 6, Jesus put it this way, Seek first the kingdom and His righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. Now, He was using food and clothing as examples of things we can concern ourselves with, but the point is clear. It's the Lord who provides all good things to include the fruit of the Spirit to His children whom He loves and cares for. So when we pray to see more godliness in our lives, like all those fruit of the Spirit things, and we should pray that these things grow, let's make sure we understand what we're really praying for is more communion with God. And that we would then see the presence of His fruit growing. Let's focus first on the giver and then look to His gracious gifts. And there's one other pitfall that I would want to mention for those of us who desire to see more godly fruit in our lives. And the pitfall is this. We might read fruit of the Spirit as something like character traits of the Spirit and try to grow in those traits so that we would be accepted by God. If He's like that, then I should be like that. And if I'm not, so here's what that might look like or sound like. Are there times we think God is disappointed in us because we aren't fruity enough? <laughs> I'm not feeling very joyful today. God must be disappointed in me. That wasn't very good of me, kind of me, gentle of me. I need to become more godly so He will approve. Do you see how that's trusting in something apart from God's saving grace through the gospel in order to get to God? That's moralism. That's legalism. That's works righteousness. That is not gospel. Do you see how even the fruit of the Spirit can be treated in this idolatrous way? We can make them the treasure in the field or we can treat them like the way to get to the treasure in the field. And either way, we fail to trust the Lord for His way of doing things. The point of all this is that idolatry can subtly sneak up on us. Sin is crouching at the door, and its desire is for you. And it isn't always obvious. But the truth is this. Through the gospel of Jesus, we have communion with the Father 
And he gives good gifts to us by his spirit. And that is what God wants us to believe. So may the Lord give us grace to get this right. For the consequences that come from whom we bow before or whom we serve are significant. And that is what we will explore next. To turn to the second half of verse 5 and verse 6, we'll pick back up with our text. I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. Now here's the big takeaway from these two verses. God takes this commandment very seriously. When Jesus said that we cannot serve two masters, that we must choose between God and mammon, he was making a point about the seriousness of this matter. God desires a people for himself who commune with him and him alone to try to share our allegiance with, to trust in, to commune with anything or anyone else, is to try to do something theologically ridiculous. When we ponder who is worthier of worship, God or something else, it's not like asking, who's going to win this October, Alabama or Tennessee? And you kind of get it when somebody's emotional response gets them to say something like, gosh, I think Tennessee. But you really know the objective truth of which team is better, don't you? <laughs> but that's a choice between two things in the same category. They're both football teams. The question of who is worthy of worship is more like asking, who's going to win the game, Alabama or a duck? <laughs> and if you choose the duck, you make yourself out to be a fool and worthy of, der of derision. Or if you choose the duck, you may just really hate Alabama. Amen. Amen. When it comes to who is worthy of worship, there is only one right answer. God and anything else are different categories. One is God, anything else is not. Worshiping anything less than the living God makes one a fool and ultimately leads to destruction. That's how seriously God takes this. He refers to worshiping or serving another as hating him. And this is not biblical hyperbole. We're talking about foregoing the treasure of the kingdom because we think a pebble of granite is comparable to the pearl of great price. In his love, he's warning us in stark terms not to make that foolish mistake. Yet humans are so prone to make such a grave error. And he makes this point 
when he warns about how multiple generations display the same sin. All human beings are susceptible to this. This isn't an old person problem like how we insist on tucking our shirts in and can't understand technology. This isn't a young person problem as in being unable to form a sentence without the word like. (laughs) No. This cuts across three and four generations. Now, I think it's important to take a little side note here because there is a doctrinal error out there about so-called generational sin. And texts like this are used as proof of this idea. And the idea is that a generation of people sin in a particular way and the punishment for the sins of that generation is paid for by future generations the punishment just keeps coming. The problem with this error is that it requires us to ignore other portions of Scripture that explicitly deny that this is true. Besides that, would this be a doctrine that would reflect the character of God that we know in the gospel of Christ? Of course not. A better way to understand this verse is to read visiting the iniquity of the fathers as punishing the same iniquity of the fathers as far as three or four generations among all the people who hate God. Not generational sin, but rather the same sin that cuts across multiple generations. Sins that can be found present across the whole range of humanity. There are lots of people who hate God. Because this sin is so pervasive and serious, God does not mince words when he tells of the consequences. He sees this sin. He will punish this sin. And he contrasts that sad truth with the blessedness that comes with being among the people who love God. Again, this is a text and a commandment intended to reveal and to entice and to call us to the love of God. What steadfast love He has for those who love Him and desire to live according to His will. That is to say, for those who are in communion with God. His beloved children, the object of God's mercy and grace. So please take this seriously, says the Lord, for the consequences are real and they are significant. And lastly, I'd like to talk about some practical ways that that we biblical counselors see getting the second commandment wrong. So if you're not familiar with me and my pastoral role here at Cornerstone, a fair amount of my time and energy is given to biblical counseling, which I love. What could be better than sitting down with God's people to consider whether God has anything to say about our lives and circumstances? I also like to hassle the guys about their grammar, but that's another story. I'll just leave it as we have some apostrophe issues here on the pastoral team. 
So as this commandment pertains to counseling, here are some general observations. There really are a lot of trials and tribulations that we face in this life. And some of them can be ministered to just by the graces of bearing each other's burdens and applying biblical wisdom. These are the trials like the ones that Job faced, which did not come upon him because of his sin, but because the Lord ordained them for his good purposes. When these trials come, here's what we do well to do. We do well to weep with those who weep, come alongside of them to pray and to be a visible and tangible reminder of the, of the love of God, and to seek to help them pursue wisdom and comfort from above. But there are other kinds of trials and tribulations, and they are ones that come from getting the second commandment wrong in large part. In the second commandment, the Lord instructs us not to go searching for things other than himself that we think will fulfill us. Do not trust in those things. Do not worship those things. Do not order your life around those things. Do not serve those things. Our aim should always be the great treasure of the kingdom. Our aim should always be communion with God the Father through the gospel of God the Son and the power and presence of God the Spirit. But sometimes, however, we don't do that. We try to go it alone. And this self-reliance has some telltale characteristics. In biblical counseling circles, we often talk about the big three of self-reliance, anger, anxiety, and escapism. First, anger. Now, anger is a response to perceiving that something is wrong, which is not necessarily a bad thing. God is described as being angry when there is an affront to his character and kingdom. And there are times when we may righteously respond in anger too. When we witness that God's character and kingdom are being besmirched, it should affect us. God is the defender of the weak and the lover of righteousness. And something like the abuse of a child flies in the face of God's character and kingdom. And if that didn't greatly affect us, there would be something terribly wrong with us indeed. And when there is affront to God's character and kingdom, we have a proper response to it. We know that God will judge rightly, that vengeance is His, and that all things one day will be made right. Knowing this frees us to be able to take up our responsibility as He calls us, and to act in a measured way, rightly, graciously, and appropriately and to trust Him for the outcome of that. But oftentimes, we insert our own timelines and agendas in these things. We don't wait on Him to display His perfect love and wisdom and power, and for Him to make all things right. So we seek our own outcomes and vengeance. 
our comfort and our wisdom has now supplanted God's agenda, and that is idolatry. And God does not honor that idolatry, and it leaves us angry. As I have encountered angry people, the common thread is that they perceive that they are being wronged, and they're not trusting the Lord that he will make things right. Instead, there is usually manipulation of others through their aggression in order to try to get their way. Likewise, anxiety has a good and godly version and an idolatrous one. The good version is one that cares deeply, that loves. It sees something as important and has concern for it. Good godly anxiety is exemplified by Paul's concern for the churches he is relating to. He cares about them, and his response is proper and God-honoring. He prays for these churches. He seeks the Lord's wisdom for his responsibility in caring for these churches. Perhaps he should go visit them. Perhaps not. Perhaps he should write a letter. Perhaps he should send a trusted lieutenant. In each case, what we see is Paul taking up his responsibility as the Lord guides him and trusting the Lord for its outcome. Idolatrous anxiety fails to trust the Lord, instead only relying on one's own notions of what is to be done but being unable to bring it about, perhaps from not seeing what can be done or from fear of acting. And in a very strange logic, sinful anxiety tries to justify its fretting, assuaging the worrier that he or she at least cares. Then sadly, this worrying can be used manipulatively again against others, guilting them into bending to the worrier's demands. And God, of course, doesn't bless such. Sinfully anxious people fashion something in which they are trusting for an outcome they crave. And the effect is not good for the worriers, their relationships, or for God's glory. And the last of the big three is escapism. Psalm 55 reflects our tendency to want simply to escape. Oh, that I had wings like a dove. I would fly away and be at rest. Yes, I would wander far away. I would lodge in the wilderness. I would hurry to find a shelter from the raging wind and tempest. This is the basis for so much unhelpful and unhealthy behavior that just wants to forget that there are trials and tribulations in this world. It can mean zoning out in front of the TV. It can mean obsessive exercise. It can mean abusing alcohol. It can mean all sorts of addictions. There is a good and helpful place for rest and recreation in our lives. It is good to pull away at times. These times of respite can refresh us and remind us that we are weak and need recharging. That's very different. That's humble. 
It's God honoring and trusting because it recognizes that God is at work and that it isn't up to us to make all things happen. An idolatrous response, on the other hand, prioritizes one's own comfort by seeking to ignore uncomfortable things that deserve our attention. Living in this fallen world is hard at times. It costs us to tend to relationships and to love. But isn't it worth it? Especially when the grace of God attends to us in these things, strengthening us and sustaining us. So as you've undoubtedly perceived in these big three, the common theme is some form of idolatry of self. One's own agenda, one's own comfort. But the great news is that the Lord knows us very well and has provided the solution to our idolatry. And this is biblical counseling's greatest joy. There has been one who came and lived among us, perfectly trusting the Father, fulfilling every aspect of God's holy law. And after having lived perfectly, he bore the penalty for all of us who have fallen short of God's commands, setting us free from the condemnation our sin deserves. He rose from the dead, proving that sin had been defeated and death had no hold on him. And then he sent the Holy Spirit to give grace and to empower us to live for God's glory. When God commands us not to fashion for ourselves anything to bow down to or to serve or to trust, it's because He has made possible for us something so much better. He says there's a treasure in the field that is ours to have because of Christ. He has given us something so valuable that nothing can compare to it. He has given us Himself and is not satisfied in our having anything less. Commune with Him. Immerse yourself in prayer, for He delights when we call upon Him. Immerse yourself in His revealed Word. Listen as He reveals to us the wonders of His character and the steadfast love and wisdom that He gives. Pay attention to the still, small voice that's saying to you throughout your day, I am with you. I will never leave you or forsake you. I am your God and I will carry you through every trial and tribulation. And I am growing you into the image of my Son. Hold fast to this treasure. Hold it in your hand. And when you open your hand and look upon it and understand what it means, it will change our lives. God is with us and for us. 
And he desires that nothing would stand in the way of our enjoying that. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, what great love you have shown to us. What great love you have communicated to us. What an amazing thing to to contemplate that we can be in communion with you. That you desire to relate to us, to care for us, to be with us. How that would change our lives as we grow in an awareness of that. So Lord God, I pray that you would help us to hide the second of the Ten Commandments away in our hearts. That we would be aware of those times when we are tempted to fashion something for ourselves instead of trusting in you and enjoying you. Make us to turn to you often. Give us this grace to know you, to love you, and to enjoy you all for your glory. We pray in Jesus' mighty name. Amen. You've been listening to a message given by Jeff Hodgson during a Sunday celebration service at Cornerstone Church of Knoxville. To find out more about Cornerstone Church of Knoxville, visit us at www.cornerstonechurchofknoxville.com or call our church office at 865-694-4356. We'd love to have you join us in our mission to treasure, grow in, and proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ.